Theodore Geisel, who is more commonly known as Dr. Seuss, said that preachers in pulpits talked about what a great message is in the book, meaning one of his books. He said, no matter what you do, somebody always imputes meaning into your books. Maya Angelou wrote the words, uh, wrote this. She said, words mean more than what is set down on paper. It takes the human voice to infuse them with deeper meaning. And lastly, Epictetus, a Greek philosopher, said, first learn the meaning of what you say and then speak. And I I would add to that that we first should learn the meaning of what we're reading and then we can teach, right? Learn the meaning of what we're reading and then we can teach. Now, that's no easy task, to learn the meaning of something and then to teach it. Uh, Because as we realize in Scripture, there's a lot of complexities. There's a lot of challenges uh, that that we face in just bridging the the gap from our modern day to an ancient time. Uh, And that doesn't include languages and it doesn't include what we mean by inspiration, whatever it does actually mean. There's challenges, right, associated with this. This is one of the reasons why the scripture tells us that it must be rightly divided. Because that implies something really important. It can be wrongly divided, right? Right? So... So it's important that we understand this. It's important that we work through things. But what we have to make sure we don't do uh, in ways that could be construed as um, untrue is to impute meaning into the, the text of Scripture or to um, infuse the words with a deeper meaning if there, in fact, is no deeper meaning, right? Um, I am a person that does believe that the the Bible has a particular meaning. It speaks a particular truth. Um, I I am also a person that believes deeply in what we would say is certainty, what we call certainty. Um, uh, Philosophers like Socrates, all the way up to the modern time with people like... um, Bertrand Russell, who don't believe in things like certainty, leave you with uh, a lot of questions, in my opinion. Leave, leave life with a lot of questions. If you can't be certain of a thing, what are you, what are you doing? How are you living your life, right? Um, Socrates said, to know is to know that you know nothing, and that is the meaning of true knowledge. <laughs> to know is that you know nothing. Now, I can get to the heart of Socrates, and I can, and I can also say that although I believe in certainty, I also believe deeply that the more I learn and the more I learn of others and what they teach, the less I feel certain about, the less I feel I'm absolutely rock solid in. Uh, that is not a scary thing for me, though, right? That, that is, that is a, a, a massive positive in my mind because it means the things that I do come to a level of certainty on I've, I've plumbed the depths of, or I've worked hard to figure it out, and, uh, and, I've, and I've arrived at something, right? And it's not that important that I have certainty on everything. I just want to have certainty on the things that I believe are important to me. Um, so I believe that we can have certainty. As a matter of fact, I believe, as a matter of fact, pun intended, uh, I believe that faith itself is, um, is said to be certainty, Okay, I don't think that you can walk through your faith journey 
without absolutes. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance or the certainty of things hoped for. That, that is a profound idea because as I've used the illustration, and many have, as I've used the illustration of a chair and resting on it as an expression of faith, you will not sit in a chair unless you have certainty that it's going to hold you. Right? You'll, you'll give it to your friend, <laughs> right? But you're not going to sit in the chair, right? So, so you must have certainty. And so certainty is attached with faith. Along these lines, I also believe that truth is something that becomes clearer the more we know. Uh, truth becomes clearer the more we know. In the beginning of this series in Genesis, we talked about, uh, you know, we talked about creation order and we talked about what do the six days, seven days of creation mean? Um, you know, what does this look like? And, and we've talked about the fact that science shows certain things and then we have the biblical text and we have to, in some way, uh, we, have to, we have to find where these two things marry each other and don't contradict. And, and I think you can find it very easily, uh, mind you. So, so I think we, we have to realize that as time goes on, we become more and more certain Certain, we realize that the globe uh, that we are living on is in fact a globe and not some sort of flat disk or some ancient Near Eastern concept of, of the cosmos. We realize those things. We also have realized because we've sent people into outer space that although the Bible says that there is a sea below the earth, there is a sea above the canopy, we also know that that's not actually what was intended to be communicated there. And then some, some people will go further and say, well, that's the water that came down for the flood. But David mentions that canopy as well, uh, much, much later than the flood, right? And so, so what, we're, what I'm getting at is that there is a, there's knowledge that we become more and more and more certain of, but it becomes more certain as we grow, as we go in our knowledge. I think Paul teaches us this idea uh, as he points to the return of King Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 13, 10 through 12, he says this, But when that which is perfect comes, and no, John MacArthur, that's not the Bible, but when the, that which is perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So knowledge, even of ourselves, is something that progresses over time. And, and, and so we will, we will know and we will be known. It's something that I, I can't wait for. Um, so understanding the Bible is, is not something, this side of heaven, that I believe that we can fully um, reach. Right, I, I believe that um, I believe that we attempt to elucidate meaning from texts of Scripture, but I don't think it's something we can fully reach. Uh, it doesn't therefore mean that we shouldn't try. So this is what this is the the kind of mud that I get into a lot with people. Uh, they'll they'll hear me say things like, "I think our English translations of the Bible need a lot of work," and they're like, "Well, are you saying we should just give up reading them?" No, not at all, not at all. I just think that you should be careful in what you're reading. 
I think you should be careful in what you're reading. I think you should dig in. I think you should look for scholars and people who have studied the languages and understand those things. And the interpretations of those Bibles, the interpretations of those English translations are built on the backs of scholars and people who are very wise trying to discern these things. But the sheer fact that there are so many translations proves that people don't agree. And so you need to work hard at those things. I also get into mud with statements like this where, where I say, I don't believe we can be absolutely certain about uh, many things this side of heaven. And people go, so it doesn't matter, right? We'll just, we'll just wing it. We'll cross our fingers and, and hope that Jesus is, is the answer. No, no, no. I, I, think you, I think that there are absolutes. And I think you should pursue those absolutes. But what I am telling you is that you ought to remain humble as you settle on an idea. You should remain humble as you settle on an idea because, as I have learned in my life, um, these ideas change. My ideas change. The things that I've landed on have, have changed many times in my journey. I'm not afraid of that in any way, shape, or form. I think that that is a wonderful thing. Again, back to few things, uh, back to being certain about fewer things. The ones that I am or feel certain about, I feel give me a great deal of hope. So I think that this is really important for us to understand. Um, in, we should remain humble, we should remain open, and we should remain willing to conform to the truth. Because I believe the truth is a thing, and I believe we are discovering it. Just like I believe natural laws are a thing, and science's whole job is just to discover them. We don't, scientists don't invent anything, right? Right? They don't invent anything. They just observe stuff. I think this is what we do with truth. Um, this is just another building block on what I shared last week concerning the fact that we are meaning-generating people. Right? We are a people who read a text of Scripture. We read a word. We, hear a thumb, we see a thumbs-up on our text message, which I've gotten way too many of this week. We get a thumbs-up in our text message, <clears throat> right? And we interpret. We we give meaning to something. And we do that based on all kinds of deciding factors. We, as I shared last week, we, we learn what we learn about the people we love. And when they respond with certain words or certain emojis or certain actions, we know how to interpret that. At least we hope we know how to interpret it. And then sometimes we don't, right? And sometimes we miss it. How many husbands and wives in this room have been in a fight this week, right? How many have uh, had an argument in the past month? How many have argued, period? How many of you want to get into an argument with me about raising your daggone hands? Okay, so, so here, yes, I, they, they, those hands raised at that point. Anyway, so, so here, here's the point. We get into arguments, why? Often because of misunderstanding. Often because we generated a meaning based on what our wife or our husband said. And then, yes, what Bettina said, Jerry, I know. And you, 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 you gain a meaning or you think you've gained a meaning. And then you make a decision based on it or you react or you respond to it. And sometimes you're wrong. And here's the challenge with biblical interpretation. If we've interpreted it wrong, sometimes it can change our behavior. Or it can make us really uh, strict about a behavior or an idea that God is not that strict about. And I know that sounds kind of weird or scary to you. So we're going to be jumping into Genesis chapter 20 this morning. And this is yet another curious story. Um, I, 
I don't even know what to say about Abraham most of the time anyway. But, but there's a few things that I want you to consider before we jump into the text. The first is this. In Genesis 15, we are told that Abraham is a righteous man before God. Okay? I want you to always remember this. Because whatever meaning you start to generate, it must be backed by an emphatic statement that has been given to us. Right? Abraham is a righteous man, and he is righteous because he believed God. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he, God, credited it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Okay? He's a righteous man because he trusted God. Likewise, Sarah is called a faithful uh, woman uh, as she, uh, uh, because she believes the same way. She trusts God. Hebrews eleven eleven says, and by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing, it wasn't to say, by the way, we can generate meaning here, and by faith, even Sarah. That statement is not to say, even Sarah, that mess of a person she was, right? You see how you can read that meaning into it? doesn't mean that. It, it means, and by faith, even Sarah, who was past bearing children, right? Even her. Not just a person that was, you know, maybe she's in her, in her early 40s and she's just struggling with this. No, no, no. 90, 100 years old, right? She was past childbearing age, was, enab- was enabled to bear children because she considered him, God, faithful who had made the promise. It's a pretty powerful thing. So you have Abraham and you have Sarah and they're both faithful um, and consequently righteous people. Uh, The second thing is that approximately 25 years has passed in this story since Abraham did this exact same thing in Egypt, okay? So you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is venturing into Egypt, and he uh, tells Sarah to tell everybody that she's his sister, and he's her brother, and, and so this will save and preserve him, right? Genesis 12, 11 through 13. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. It, it is a fascinating thing that there is actually um, lore or um, uh, Jewish writings that are just obscure writings, but Jewish writings that talk about the beauty of Sarah. And again, this is a generation of meaning. Right? They're generating meaning. But they talk about Sarah in terms like Sarah was so beautiful that she was as beautiful as Eve. She was as beautiful as the first woman. Okay? So there's something about this. But, but how are they getting that? Well, they had a Polaroid. That's how they get No, they didn't, have, they didn't have any photos. They don't know that. There is a meaning that gets generated to this to say, man, when we talk about a beautiful woman, we're just going to set Sarah apart. We set Sarah apart in Jewish, ide- in Jewish minds. We set Mary apart in Christian ideals. This is one of the reasons why I think Mary gets deified or glorified. Not because she should, not because she asked for it, right? She will be honored, God says, and she will be spoken of, God says in his word. But I think one of the reasons we do this is because we look at this and go, wow, this woman is different, right? She had a baby that was conceived by God. And this is the Messiah. So, so we generate meaning based on these things. So Abraham said, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and let you live. That's pretty awesome. Like he knows them really well. They're going to kill me and let you live because you're beautiful. Then they will kill me and let you live. Say that you are my sister. 
<clears throat> so that I will be, look at the two things that are going to happen to Abraham in, in lying this way, or in sharing, I don't think it's a lie, that's my opinion. Okay, so he says, so that I will be treated well, number one, for your sake, and that my life will be spared because of you. So I, I want to be treated well, and I don't want to die. Okay, so this is, this is the benefit that he's going to have because he says this. I just want you to realize 25 years has lapsed between this event and what we're about to read. Sarah was about 65 years old then, and so now she's 90 years old, okay? Uh, Abraham is approximately 100 years old at this point. Now, the next piece to know before we walk through it is Gerar, the place that they're in, is just southeast of Gaza, and this is the place where the Philistines settled, just for a point of reference for later in the message. Uh, this is also within the Babylonian Empire as they took over, as they began to spread, okay? So it's really important to keep that in mind when we start to generate meaning because there's things that matter there. The other thing is that the, word, that the name of the king, Abimelech, may in fact not be a name. It may not be his name. It may simply mean king of Gerar, okay? And if it means king of Gerar, there's significance to this because it would... It would uh, create a different understanding of what happens with Abraham's son later, Isaac, who, brace yourselves if you don't know the Bible, does the exact same thing to the exact same guy, okay, about his wife. He lies and says, Rebecca's not my wife, okay? Now, here, this is important. If it means king of Gerar, those could be two different people. Do you see what I'm saying? Why would that make sense? It would make sense that because when Isaac does this, you would think that the king of Gerar, or Abimelech, if that was his proper name, and he was the original guy, would be like, you've done this to me before. Your family's a bunch of crooks. I don't like this stuff. You keep selling me a bill of goods, okay? You would think he would notice this trend happening. Just a suggestion, okay? But who knows? They collected harem. They collected all kinds of weird stuff back then. So I don't know exactly what, what to interpret there. Okay, so now we're going to jump through the text, and we're just going to read it verse by verse, guys. There's going to be points that I make along the way, and I want you to be thinking what meaning you would generate through this. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, potentially just king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken. Now, this is going to challenge us when we start to understand what God is saying and maybe why God would say it, especially in light of the concept of omniscience. It just becomes really interesting. Okay, so he says, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now, Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? It's interesting, the word blameless here is, is integrity, and um, as far as I can tell, it's the first time that it ever appeared in the Bible. So, so the guy who talks about being, in, uh, being of integrity... Um, 
is uh, Abimelech, this foreign king, right? Or it's found in verse 5. So it says, uh, Even though blameless, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? So they both told this thing. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Okay, so, so God says, you're a dead man, okay? And Abimelech, or the king of Gerar, responds, and he says, I didn't know what was happening, okay? So why am I a dead man? I didn't know what was going to happen, okay? Then God says to him in verse 6 in the dream, he says, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me, before I did not, before, uh, therefore I did not let you touch her. You might look at this and go, okay, God. If you knew this, if you knew it was in the integrity of your heart, why would you say you're a dead man? Think about that. God himself, omniscient as he is, says, King of Gerar, you're a dead man. Why am I a dead man? I'm innocent. I knew you were innocent. It's curious. If you knew I was innocent, why threaten me, right? It seems that if we're going to generate meaning, we're going to have to put that together and we're going ha- to have to assert something like this. We're going to have to say something like, God was giving the king a chance to return Sarah, and if he did not, he would be a dead man. Okay? But up to this point, he has been prevented by God from having this woman. Okay? From, from messing this up. Now, the, the king of Gerar gathers a harem, but Sarah's 90 years old. I don't, I don't know what that is. I don't know about you, but that's a, that seems strange to me. But he didn't, he didn't care, young or old. He just wanted them all, right? So, so he gathers this woman in. They tell him, you're, he, he says, God says, you're a dead man. He says, I was innocent. He said, you are innocent. You are innocent. So why did you tell me I'm a dead man? You've got to return her is effectively what meaning we have to generate from this. So it says in verse 7, now therefore restore the man's wife. That's where we kind of come to this idea, right? Restore the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So you see where we generate the meaning? You see where this comes about, right? So in some sense, this command is the same that was given to the Pharaoh in Egypt, which is you return her, and if you don't return her, there's going to be a problem, okay? So we go on to verse 8, and I'll, I'll keep working through this, and we'll go back and forth a little bit. So Abimelech, the king of Gerar, also arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. No crap. Right? God just said, you're dead, and if you don't do the thing, I'm going to kill all them too. They're like, hey, you got to do the thing. Right? you got to return the thing. Okay, verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, and this is where it's really funny, what the heck have you done? What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Now, Just because the king of Gerar calls it a great sin does not mean it is. We have generated the meaning that Abraham has lied. 
generating generating a meaning that he didn't tell a full truth, and we have this weird adage that says a half-truth is a full lie. Well, we have a problem, and the problem is that Abraham is never reprimanded for this behavior. Neither, in fact, is Isaac. Why is that? Why is that? Is it just that they're righteous people and they make mistakes? That's one way to generate meaning. That's a meaning you can generate. You will never find a text that explicitly says that's what you should interpret that to mean. That's challenging, right? That's challenging. But what happens is is pastors get up and they read this story and they assert all kinds of practical things and they say, here's the deal. Look at the kind of conflict that comes into your life when you lie or when you don't tell full truths. Now, is that a true teaching? You invite a lot of conflict in your life. You do, but here's the problem. That might not be what this is telling you. That might not be at all what's happening here. I'm not suggesting it is or it isn't, but I am telling you that you have to be careful because you and I are the ones generating meaning. And then what happens is tradition gets a hold. Tradition says that is what it means and nobody's allowed to change it. And then once that's what it means and no one's allowed to change it, anybody who offers even a question, like, are we sure that's what it means? Everybody starts getting hot under the collar. Everybody starts panicking. It's the same thing that we saw when we talk about Genesis 1 and 2. It's the same thing that we see throughout the rest of the Bible. And what we have to do is be careful just to try to be careful to recognize that we insert meaning in lots of things. We insert meaning, quite honestly, in everything we do. So, here's what happens. So Abraham arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? Abraham said, Because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, when did he say this before? He said this in Egypt, right? He said the same thing. I want it to go well with me, and I don't want to die, right? So we're going to say this. But here's where it gets really interesting to me. Abraham says, because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, and not the daughter of my mother, uh, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. But it gets even stranger. Verse 13, and it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house. I love that term. God caused me to do it. God caused me to wander from my father's house. That I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Now tell me, church, when did he come up with the plan to do this? At the beginning, before Egypt and before the king of Gerar. Why did he do this? Does he just know he's going to encounter kings and people are going to want to kill him? Does he somehow know that telling that she's his brother or she's his sister and he's her brother, that that will preserve his life? I mean, listen, if she's that beautiful, kill the brother. 
right? Kill the brother. Who cares who it is? Just take her, right? Is this what is culturally understood? Who knows? This is the point. You have to generate meaning by it. You have to look at it and go, I think he made this plan beforehand because he was in danger or thought he would be in danger, right? But when we read things like, and Abimelech calls Abraham to him, and Abraham looks at Abimelech and he says, because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife, we have to be careful. Abraham didn't just make this up at this moment. He's had this plan since the beginning, and Sarah's been in on it. And these are the people that God calls faithful, and these are the people that God calls righteous. So is he lying? If he's lying, we've got a challenge, right? We've got a challenge to what his behavior is. If he's not lying, and he's telling this, we would have to ask the question, well, why the heck would he do that? Right? You, you're tracking with me, okay? So here's two major schools of thought. The first school of thought is this. Abraham's just lying. Abraham's lying, and because he's lying to save his butt. How many of you have done that? And, and the other half are lying now, right? So say, you, you lie to save your butt. It could be Abraham is lying to save his butt. That's very possible, okay? Here's another meaning that could be generated from this. So you start to delve into different scholars, and you start to hear all kinds of things that I wouldn't have thought based on a, just a surface reading. Here's what some scholars believe. Some scholars believe that Sarah represents Israel, and she is sold into captivity, just like Israel will be dropped into captivity, by two people. First, the Egyptians for 430 years, and second, by who? Babylon, which is exactly where Gerar is in the vicinity of Babylon. So, maybe this whole thing happened because God caused Abraham to leave, and maybe God caused this whole plan to ensue. I don't know. Right? And this is fun because you're like, the pastor doesn't know. You would marvel at the things I don't know. Right? It's unbelievable. Shut up, Barney. Anyway, <laughs> right? It's unreal. But my point is, if you look at this text and you just generate your meaning, here's what you can do with it. And pastors do this all the time. And this is the, imp this is the impetus of this message. This is what I want you to take away if you take away nothing else. Pastors will look at this and say, here's the truth. Abraham's just a liar and God works within his sin, okay? And they give no justification for it. It's fine. They just make stuff up, okay? Because that's the meaning that they think that says. And then they make much ado about something, but if it's nothing, they're making much ado about nothing. They'll say in verse 11, they'll say, and Abraham said, because I thought, and I've heard five sermons this week, <laughs> the deal with this because I thought and every pastor lockstep goes you see where you go wrong you go wrong when you think and you don't just trust God is there some truth in that probably probably there's some truth in that is it always the truth absolutely not and that's a fun phrase that I use a lot absolutely freaking right okay so 
The idea is that pastors will jump up and they'll start preaching and they'll start slapping their Bible and they'll get you all motivated and they'll say things like, you got to make sure that you don't do this lying business and all this other stuff. You shouldn't lie. Don't bear false witness. God was pretty clear on it, right? He didn't need a goofy story of weirdness to try to communicate it again, okay? But what happens is text after text after text gets used out of context in really weird ways because somebody somewhere generated a meaning. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and to keep you, to preserve you, right? Do you know who that was written to? Israel, not you. So quit claiming it. You know where you can claim it? You can claim it in the New Testament when God looks you in the eye and says, I take care of the sparrows, I'll take care of you, right? It's amazing. You don't need a Bible passage of some weird, crazy incidents, right, to try to make something out of something. What you have to do is develop a better philosophy. And your philosophy is that you look at the text of Scripture and you allow it to prepare you to be level-headed, right? And you look at that and you say, okay, well, if I'm in a situation like this, unless God is commanding me to, which, by the way, by the way, The Mormons have a book of Abraham, and in the book of Abraham for the Mormons, God commanded Abraham to say that Sarah was his sister. Not Abraham came up with it, but they say God told him to do that. Interesting, interesting. Where do they come up with it? Same place they come up with all their other nonsense, which is gold tablets in the backyard or some crap. Anyway, so, so, so my point, though, is there's meaning generation for all of these kinds of things. And then pastors get a hold of it, and they try to drum you up and to work you into something. Here's your takeaway. Please be critical of what you hear. And I am telling you to do that even of me. Please be critical. Look at its context. Look at its meaning. Try to prove it. Work through it. If you come up to me and go, that's just not right, and here's these texts to prove it, I'm going to be like, that's awesome. Let's work through that. Let's look at that direction, right? If you come up to me and you say, that's not what that means, why? Because I've generated a different meaning, and I like it my way. Who cares? Do you know that's why people fight constantly? What I'm going to do is go, that's awesome. Let's talk about how you got there. Right? Because that's what we should do. We should be a people to go, that's interesting. You're going to have to walk me through that. You're going to have to lead me to this. I was listening to a podcast the other day between uh, Jordan Peterson and another, um, uh, another gentleman. I can't remember his name. But he was teaching, uh, he was talking about how to educate your children. And in a small clip in this podcast, they started talking about the phenomenon that is Joe Rogan, right? And you all know who this guy is, or at least know the name. But what is amazing about Joe Rogan is that he is actually the number one podcast in 100 plus countries. Why? Why? Here's what their conclusion was. Because Joe Rogan, when he's interviewing people... He is asking genuine questions, not leading questions. He is literally ignorant of what you're going to talk about and some things he knows a great deal about because he's far smarter than people think, right? But he genuinely asks a question. So he'll say something like, what we should do as Christians. How did, how did you arrive at this? Not how did you arrive at this so that I can hit you with my zinger, right? 
and show you my, my stuff, right? But how did you arrive at it? Walk me through your process. And having the humility enough that when you hear it, you go, oh, that's completely different. That's different than I've ever heard, right? On a Joe Rogan podcast, this is fun because it's the Genesis series that we're in. On a Joe Rogan podcast, I can't remember how long ago, they interviewed these two scientists that are trying to really wreck the modern view of history, the modern view of how we understand our history or how we got here. And here is one of the things that they, uh, these guys showed Joe Rogan, and you would have you laughed, you will laugh if you want to look it up, seeing his jaw drop at this, at this evidence. They walked him through what land looks like when, it, when it's underwater, when it's submerged underwater, right? And it creates these massive ripples, right? And you've, you've seen this if you see it on a, on a beach sometime, just in a small scale, you've seen that, right? These little ripples. But what happens when that water is there and water recedes and it doesn't return is those ripples become stuck. They become stuck. Do you know where they've found these ripples? Everywhere on the planet. And do you know what geologists think that that means? They think it means at some point everything was underwater. It could be, all I'm saying, could be that God was right. I don't know. I have no clue. I still wonder about that one. I have lots of questions about a global flood. You guys know this. I shared this back in the beginning of the series. I have questions about it. But you... Joe Rogan, who is an kind of anti-Christian kind of guy and doesn't like these things, he goes, what? <laughs> I mean, he's just like, he's blown away by this reality, okay? And that's something that we have to do. What do we do when we see things like this? What do we do when we're reading our Bibles? What do we do when we survey the science and the evidence? We generate meaning. What should we do in generating that meaning? Be cautious and careful. Be cautious and careful. Because just as the fight between religion and science, which shouldn't be a fight, is raging deeply inside of our world, the fights between Christians are worse. The fights between Christians are worse, and they often come down to, I generated this meaning and you generated that one. And we're ready to burn each other at the stake over these kinds of things. And listen, church, I've been just as guilty about this. Very much so. And so my aim is to reset this idea and try to read things through a bigger lens and say, could it mean this? Sure, it could mean that. Could it also mean this? Sure. In this story, could this be prophetic why Sarah was led into captivity both times? Sure. What's the problem with the theory? Well, why is Rebecca done that way? Right? Wouldn't you ask that question? You go, well, what about Rebecca? Why, why does that enter into the equation? I don't know. There might be a meaning behind it. If we ask the question, is Abraham a liar? We might ask the question, why does God never correct him? Why does God never correct him? Is it just that he's super shrewd? And are you going to conclude that you can make a moral judgment here and go, listen, just be super shrewd. It's not a full lie. Wink, wink, right? Like, you... Are you going to conclude that because that's the way you interpret Scripture? All I would say is be careful. Be careful with whatever you do. So we go back to the text. Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place. 
and they will kill me because of my wife. Because she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. You want to know the generated meaning that I get out of that text? Take what you want. God's going to kill me otherwise. Maybe he is thinking that. I don't know, right? Take whatever you please. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Do you notice what he calls Abraham there? I gave your brother... Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe it's supposed to be a wink-wink. I don't know. I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men. You are cleared. Why? Sarah was taken to be a wife. She was taken, and he hadn't uh, consummated this marriage. This also puts into the fore uh, an idea of an ancient custom of marriage where you could issue a certificate or you would need to issue a certificate of divorce before the relationship was ever consummated. How can we prove this? Look at the story of Joseph and Mary. Joseph is ready to put Mary away silently. Some translations say, issue her a certificate of divorce, right? Why? They haven't done anything because that's not how marriage worked. Marriage doesn't look like the way we see marriage today in a lot of ways, church. But We've generated meaning, and we think it's one thing, okay? And so it goes bigger, and it goes broader, right? So we, we have this idea. So Sarah is one of these people who, what's she going to do? Leave the king? Well, she's cleared. She's vindicated, and she's vindicated before all men. There's, a, there's an emphatic statement here that the king of Gerar says, I have no claim to you. That's apparently really required in this culture. Verse 17 Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord, listen to this, church, for the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. You might look at that and go, who cares? It's a quick little end to the story. No, 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 no. How do you know whether or not all the wombs in a country can't bear babies? You got to take some time, right? you got to look at this. you got to figure it out. How long do you think Sarah was inside of Abimelech's harem or court? It appears she was there for a long time. What does that say? God works in amazing ways if he is making it so that the king doesn't take her for a very long period of time, right? That's interesting. That's meaning that we have to associate with texts like this, right? So we look at it as just this kind of little little quick end. They're like, okay, cursed wombs, now they're better, right? You don't find that out in a day. You don't find that out in a day. You start wondering why your people aren't having babies. And then all of a sudden you're like, what's going on? And Abraham ventures in and admits his problem, right? So, so this is what's going on here. All that I would conclude with all of this is we have one more of the most curious stories inside of the scripture. But what we do know is that God has a way of bringing about these 
these uh, stories to a good and prosperous end because God, lo- God, um, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. I love the fact that Abraham prayed to God and Abimelech was healed. I think that that's an interesting thing because if he praised him and he's healed, God's listening to Abraham. Is God listening to a liar? I don't know, but you should consider it, right? You should consider this when you're reading. So I, I want to do a, just a quick little thing, and somebody who has their Bible with them, at the beginning of this chapter, can you tell me what the heading of your chapter 20 says? Abraham's treachery. Somebody else. Abraham and Abimelech. Just there generated meaning. What is the story in Bob's Bible? Abraham and Abimelech. What's the story in Mike's Bible? Abraham's treachery. How do you know that? How do you know that? You you don't. You've generated meaning. It may have evidence. You may work for your meaning. But my point is, we even put it into our English translations. We put it in the titles, in the headings. We're generating meaning constantly, church. Okay, so... Back to the beginning, right? Preachers and pulpits talked about what a great message is in the book. No matter what you do, somebody always imputes meaning into your books. Maya Angelou, words mean more than what is set down on paper. It takes the human voice to infuse them with uh, deeper meaning. Yes, this is true. But as pastors and as Christians... We should really seek first to learn the meaning of a text before we ever go asserting a view on it or trying to teach it. Now, does that mean Nathan just put himself out of a job? No, it doesn't mean that, (laughs) right? It doesn't mean that. What it means is that we're back to the same thing that I shared at the beginning, and that is truth is something that we are discovering along the way. What we must do is be humble enough to look at it every day. Look at it new every day because you're going to find beautiful new things if you will just go through scripture and put back your meaning generator, you know, put it on the back burner and see how it could be interpreted in all these different ways, okay? So I want to encourage you, be critical. Encourage you to be critical. Don't you love this? I want to encourage you to be critical of what you hear in pastor's messages you should ask the question, where did you get that application? Where did you get that connection, right? And you should challenge it. I also encourage you to check your meaning. Look at what you generate when you read God's word. I would also push it even further. Check your meaning when you're talking to your husband or your wife. This is really important. If you check your meaning in all places, you might go, honey, um, Can you clarify that statement for me? And what does it do, potentially? Stops a fight. Stops an issue, right? Unless you're Mark, and Mark just says bad things. That's just all there is to it, right? The point, guys, is that we're meaning generators. We have this story of Abraham, and he's moving on, and God is preserving him along the way, okay? An amazing, amazing truth. God is preserving his man, okay? And we're going to see what happens next week when he gives him the very promise that he has been waiting for in Isaac. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and thank you for uh, being a faithful God. One who loves us immensely. One who is 
one who has cared deeply for us enough to to speak to us, to write to us, to give us um, your word. I pray, Lord, that you would begin to cultivate in our church um, what you have cultivated in many uh, scholars and many students and many theologians that have given their minds and hearts to drive after things. I pray that you would cultivate a learning culture here. A culture of people that want to dive in to understand that meaning. Because you have given us something beautiful. We need to understand it well. So I pray, Lord, that you would, you would put in us, each of us, uh, a learner's heart. We would grow each and every day when it comes to your word. And that we would, we would be humble as we encounter different meanings and different ideas. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.